Good evening. Good to see you tonight. Hope that you had a good afternoon. Glad we're back together to study God's Word some more. We're going to be in Daniel chapter 2 tonight. Daniel chapter 2. So if you want to turn your Bibles there, that'd be great. Uh, If you do not have a copy of God's Word, there's a black book in the pew in front of you. You can turn to Daniel chapter 2 on uh, page 738. Uh, of that black Bible in front of you, page 738. I uh, reminded BJ about 10 minutes right before we got started, uh, something I said a couple weeks ago but forgot to say last week. Uh, we won't have an invitation song tonight. I'm just going to close out my lesson in prayer, uh, and then after that, uh, we'll have a couple more songs or a song, whatever BJ decides, uh, and then we'll uh, be dismissed shortly after that. So probably, as we're kind of doing this uh, study through the book of Daniel on most Sunday nights when we're doing this, we probably won't have an invitation uh, just to let everybody know that's what's going on and it's nothing uh, weird, it's just a little different, all right? Uh, Daniel chapter 2 is where we're at, and we've already noticed, of course, in Daniel chapter 1 and the earlier part of Daniel chapter 2, uh, a couple different emphases, uh, that's not a word, uh, but a couple different things that, that the Bible the story is emphasizing. Uh, first of all, uh, that uh, God is in control even when it seems like he is not. God is in control even when it seems like he is not. And secondly, uh, and probably amongst maybe other things, uh, Daniel has, is showing us a different way to rebel. It's not a violent re- rebellion that he's leading uh, in, with himself or even with his friends, but he is definitely rebelling against uh, the things that are ungodly in his life, uh, in this kingdom that he is a part of. Last week, uh, you remember, remember, hopefully, the early part of Daniel chapter 2, the king, Nebuchadnezzar, he has a dream, and he says to all the wise men, all the dream interpreters, everyone who's supposed to be able to tell him these things, hey, come and tell me what my dream means. But he doesn't just say that, right? He says, you also need to tell me what my dream was. And nobody's able to do it. And the end result was they were all going to be killed. All right? Uh, But then Daniel hears about this. He goes and prays with his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And God reveals the mystery to him. And that's kind of where we left off last week was God providing Daniel the interpretation, providing Daniel what the dream was. And now Daniel tonight, in Daniel chapter 2, starting in verse 31, he's going to go before the king and he's going to tell him what his dream was and what his dream means. Now, lots of ink has been uh, used and lots of thoughts have been made about this passage of Scripture. And we're not going to do that tonight. Uh, I'm not going to write anything down. And we're not going to spend a whole lot of time thinking about exactly which kingdoms or from history are represented by these four kingdoms here. And there's some reasoning for that. The biggest reason, which is the only kingdom we need to worry about is the eternal kingdom that's set up at the very end of this dream. Okay? Uh, we'll make some comments about some of the other stuff and think about it a little bit, but that's not the most important thing, so we're not going to spend a whole lot of time on it tonight. Because, and really, probably the biggest reason for that is Daniel doesn't spend a whole lot of time on it. Okay? So let's, listen, let's read it and let's see what happens. Uh, we're going to read uh, 31 through the end of the chapter, um, make some comments as we go along, and then we'll, we'll wrap up with a, probably five or six closing points, uh, and the lesson will be yours. Pretty, pretty quick and easy tonight, okay? Uh, Daniel chapter 2. Starting in verse 31, Daniel is standing before the king. Uh, the threat of death uh, is on the king's tongue. If he says something wrong, if he doesn't tell him what his dream was exactly, and if he's not able to interpret the dream. So imagine the tension that is in the room as Daniel stands before the king, one of the most powerful men in the world, and he says to him these things. You, O king, were looking, and behold, there was a single great image. That image, which was large and of an extraordinary splendor, was rising up in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. 
The head of that image was made of fine gold, its breast and its arms of silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partially of iron and partially of clay. You continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floor, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. All right, so that's the dream. That's the dream that the king has, and uh, the king agrees with that. He doesn't stop him in the middle of it. He says, yeah, he, you know, his, his silence is agreement, saying, yeah, that's what I dreamed. And then in verse 36, this was the dream. Now we will say its interpretation before the king. All right, so here's what the dream meant. And notice how much time and what Daniel emphasizes in this interpretation that was given to him by God. You, O king, are the king of kings, to whom God, whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. And wherever the sons of men inhabit, or the beast of the field, or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand and has made you rule with power over them all. You are the head of gold. All right, so that's a pretty big compliment to give to Nebuchadnezzar and we can tell that he likes it because at the end of this interpretation he doesn't really ask any questions and just a little bit of a spoiler alert we're going to go through and talk about the rest of it but this is the only kingdom that is described in Daniel chapter 2 that we can absolutely identify because it's the only one that God absolutely identifies there's some evidence and some reasoning that we think the second kingdom is this and the third kingdom is this and the fourth kingdom is this but the only one we know for sure is the one that God says Nebuchadnezzar you're the head of gold you're the first kingdom you're the one right now and you are a great and mighty king and everyone all around the world knows who you are and they they honor you they bow down to you you are in charge you are extremely powerful so that's the only one that we can know for sure because again in verse 38 he says to the king also representing Babylon in a greater extent you are the head of gold and then notice this notice how much how little time Daniel spends especially on the second kingdom the third kingdom and then he gives us a little bit of detail about the fourth kingdom kingdom He says in verse 39, but after you, there will arise another kingdom inferior to you. That's all we know about the second kingdom. That's it. Isn't that interesting? So much time and so much effort and so much energy people have placed in the last thousands of years to try and figure out what was this second kingdom? What was this third kingdom? What was this fourth kingdom? And the guy whom God reveals it to doesn't spend any time on it. It's not important to him. And that needs to be a point for us to take with us and to understand that 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 is not the most important thing about this passage. And then after that it says, uh, but, but after you there will rise another kingdom inferior to you, then another third kingdom of bronze, which will rule with power over all the earth, okay? Was he talking about both the second and third kingdom there or just the third kingdom? Again, we were just told very, very little about these second and third kingdoms. And then we get to the fourth kingdom uh, in verse 40. Then there will be a fourth kingdom. And he gives us some details, but these details are still just descriptions, not historical details necessarily. He says this kingdom is as strong as iron inasmuch as iron crushes and shatters all things so like iron that breaks into pieces it will crush and break all these in pieces so what do we find out about it it's strong this fourth kingdom is strong but we can also tell that it's violent 
It's a violent kingdom. It's a kingdom that crushes others around it. It goes on to say in verse 41, Now, in that you saw that the feet and the toes, partially of potter's clay and partially of iron, it will be a divided kingdom. So this fourth kingdom is strong, it's violent, and it's divided. But it will have the toughness of iron inasmuch as you saw iron mixed with common clay. And as for the toes of feet uh, were partially of iron and partially of clay, some of, so some of the kingdom will be strong and part of it will be britter, britter, brittle. Excuse me. Verse 43. And if you saw the iron mixed with common clay, they will, they will not combine with one another in the seed of men, but they will not, they will combine with one another in the seed of men, but they will not cling to one another even as iron does not combine with clay. And in the days of those kings, and here's where it gets important, but so let's just stop and think about it for a minute. First kingdom, Nebuchadnezzar, no doubt about it. God tells us that, okay? They, they knew that on the day it was revealed, and we've known it since then. Uh, and the second and third kingdom, we know very little about. They're powerful kingdoms. They're great kingdoms. They're not as great as Babylon, not as powerful as Babylon, but they still rule over a large portion of the earth. The fourth kingdom, it's a strong kingdom, but it's a divided kingdom. It's a brittle kingdom. Uh, it's a, it, it, has, it has some issues in it. It's still a great and powerful kingdom, empire, you might say, but it has some significant issues. Uh, but again, let me, let me say here now, and in Daniel chapter 7, there's a, a similar vision that probably relates to the same four kingdoms in this description, but in neither one of those passages are the kingdoms specifically told which kingdom they will be. So this prophecy is made, God reveals it to Daniel, Daniel reveals it to the kings, the two different kings that have these dreams, uh, but... The idea is that the, the first kingdom is important because it relates to Babylon. And the fourth kingdom is important, not because the kingdom itself is important, but because what we're about to read, starting in verse 44. And it says, In those days, in the days of this fourth kingdom, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will cause a kingdom to rise up which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put to an end all these kingdoms. But it will itself stand forever. Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut off of, out of the mountain without hands, and it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will happen in the future. So the dream is certain, and its interpretation is trustworthy. Now, we're going to make some points to, to carry with us and hopefully to help us understand some things going forward here in just a minute. But this is the interaction between, you know, the, the king has made this promise, this declaration. He's made a threat. Hey, if you can't tell me what this dream means, you're dead. And all, everybody else, all the other wise men came forward and what could they not do? They couldn't tell what the dream was. So the king made the proclamation. Hey, go kill them all. Daniel finds out about it. He begs for a little more time. He gets a little more time. He prays. God reveals it to him. And, and this is it. This is the king's dream. This is the interpretation. Notice again what it says. He says, the dream is certain and its interpretation is trustworthy. Daniel says, God says, this was your dream and this is what it means. So beyond the shadow of a doubt in Daniel's mind, and we'll see here in a second, in the king's mind, and therefore it should be in our mind, this is what the dream was and this was its interpretation. Let's look, notice uh, King Nebuchadnezzar's reaction in verse 46. He fell on his face and did homage to Daniel 
and said for them to present him an offering and fragrant incense. The king answered Daniel and said, Truly, your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries since you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts and he made him rule with power over the whole province of Babylon and the chief uh, prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. And Daniel sought of the king and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, his three friends, Hananiah, Meshach, and Azariah, over the administration of the province of Babylon while Daniel was at the king's court. So here is when we see Daniel and his three friends promoted to extremely powerful positions because God was able to use him because Daniel was there uh, at that given opportunity. Now here's some points that we need to take with us, okay? Again, the text here and in other places where there are similar passages, God in the Bible does not explicitly tell us the identity of the different kingdoms. We're able to look at scripture, we're able to look at some secular history, we're able to compare and contrast and say this seems to fit here and this seems to make sense. So we're able to to perhaps figure it out, but we can't know for certain because God doesn't tell us for certain. Now most people who have studied this and spent a whole lot more time studying it than I have, for for a long, long time, most people have, have agreed that these were the four kingdoms. Babylon, absolutely the first kingdom. The Medes and Persians, which were very closely related and very quickly in succession, uh, kingdom or kingdoms, the, they represent the second kingdom. Uh, the, Greece, the Grecian Empire or the Empire of, Greek, of Greece would be the third one and Rome would be the fourth one. Okay, now we would tend to believe that because we would think as Christians, we think that this everlasting kingdom, which is represented by the stone, which crushes all the other kingdoms, we would think of that as Jesus and the church, Right? So recently, over the last probably 20 or 30 years, some in scholarly uh, Bible study, okay, some people that spend a whole lot of time looking into to, to Bible study, and if you talk to these people, a lot, of, a lot of scholarly Bible students, okay, those are people who look very, very deeply into the languages and very, very deeply into uh, to a lot of different ideas, uh, they've come up with some different ideas, about what it is or what these four kingdoms are. I would caution you to be careful when you, when you talk to people like that because a lot of them are very theologically liberal. When I say theologically liberal, I don't mean like they clap in church, okay? I don't mean that. I mean, when I, when I say theologically liberal, they may not even believe in God. They know the Bible and they have studied it in a lot of ways, but they may not even believe in God. So we have to be careful just because someone is a Bible scholar, someone who might teach at a large university or even a secular university, just because they claim to and probably do know a great deal of the Bible doesn't automatically mean they have the faith that the Bible is real. Um, so they may be part of the people who may be changing this, but another group of people who are very religious uh, would be some of our friends who might believe in premillennialism. Okay? And here's, here's why... That for, for a long, long time, perhaps, perhaps even for centuries, most people thought that the kingdoms were Babylon, the Medes and the Persians, uh, Greece and Rome. Most people thought that for a long time. But people who are premillennialists uh, might think or have to kind of change it in their minds to say, well, okay, so let me back up. Uh, one of the biggest beliefs of someone who's a premillennialist, they believe that we are pre before the millennium, the thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth, okay? That's their belief that that's going to happen. I don't believe the Bible teaches that, but some people do. 
And so in order to, to make it fit that these four kingdoms come before this long-lasting kingdom, this thousand-year reign of Jesus, they have to say, well, it can't be Rome because it's been too long since Rome and Jesus isn't here yet to reign on the earth for a thousand years. Um, so I think that's where some people, scholarly people in particular, but maybe even some of our religious friends are starting to change their mind that these four kingdoms don't end with Rome. Let me give you just a little bit, just a very small biblical evidence of why I would say uh, the fourth kingdom is represented by Rome. This is very small. There's lots more to say, but we're just not going to take the time to do it tonight, okay? Um, so those people have to deny. People who, who are premillennialist, people who believe in the thousand-year reign, they have to deny that at least in some part the church is the kingdom of God. They have to deny that the church is the kingdom of God. They have to claim that Jesus came to the earth to establish a kingdom, to sit upon the throne of David in Jerusalem, and to reign a physical kingdom on the earth. They have to say he came to do that, and he failed. Now, there's a, I have a problem with that. The idea to say that God came to earth to complete a mission and failed to do it, and instead was killed by his adversaries. God is not that weak. If God wanted to do that, he would have done that. And there's no teaching of it in Scripture. So I, I, don't, I don't believe that. But they, they have to deny that the church is at least in part the kingdom of God. When I think kingdom of God, I think Old Testament people who are faithful to God, they're part of the kingdom of God. People who don't live yet, they're part of the kingdom of God. People who are going to be in heaven. I, I think kingdom of God, I think everybody who's ever been faithful or ever will be faithful. They are a part of the kingdom of God. So a church is, the church is a part of that, but I don't think it is all-encompassing. But the church is the representation of the kingdom on earth. Okay, At least in part, the church is the kingdom of God. But people who would deny that Rome is this fourth uh, kingdom that's represented here in Daniel chapter 2 would have to deny that the church is, is at least in part the kingdom of God. Here's just a few verses. Turn back to Daniel chapter 2 uh, and verse 28. Daniel chapter 2 and verse 28. This is right before Daniel begins to uh, tell the king what his dream was. And it says in Daniel uh, 2.28, However, there is a God in heaven who reveals mystery, and he has made known to, the king, to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the last days. Those two words are important. These things will take place in the last days. This was your dream and the vision of your head while you were on your bed. Okay, so Daniel says this dream, and we've just had the revelation of the dream, the four kingdoms, and in the fourth kingdom there is establishment of an everlasting kingdom. Uh, this is what happens in the last days. That phrase is important biblically. So that's Daniel chapter 2 and verse 28. If you go to Joel chapter 2 and verse 28, I'm not going to take the time to, to turn there. Write it down. Read it later if you want to. But in Joel chapter 28, we have a prophecy that in the last days, God will pour forth his spirit and people will be able to prophesy and do other such things. So in Daniel chapter 2, verse 28, in Joel chapter 2, Verse 28, we have prophecies about the last days. In Acts chapter 2, what happens in Acts chapter 2? The day of Pentecost. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 17, Peter, when he's talking to the people who think that the people who are speaking in tongues, the Christians who are speaking different languages, they say, oh, these guys are just drunk. He says, no, no, these guys aren't drunk. This is what Joel prophesied would happen in the last days. Daniel 2 King, God has told you what's going to happen in the last days. Joel chapter 2, here's what's going to happen in the last days. Acts chapter 2, hey, it's the last days. That's why these things are happening. And then in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 2, it says that in these last days, God has chosen to reveal himself through his son. 
So the days of Jesus are described as the last days. Daniel chapter 2, the king is told, what I'm about to tell you about this dream is going to happen in the last days. That means that this kingdom that is going to be established, that is an everlasting kingdom that defeats all other kingdoms, it will happen when? The last days. Jesus is alive on the earth during the last days. Acts chapter 2, Peter says, these are the last days. So there are just four verses that I believe alone probably help us to understand uh, that Rome must be this fourth kingdom. There are other reasons. There are historical reasons. If you look at the, the government and the, the dividedness of the, the Roman Empire towards the end of the reign of the Roman Empire, they had a capital in Rome, in Italy, and they also had a capital in Turkey. So they were literally a divided kingdom. They had two kings, but they were one empire. Historically, they did that. Okay? In Constantinople, I believe, is where it was. Uh, so, so even historically, there are reasons to understand and interpret that this is what it would have been. But, uh, again, all of that doesn't matter in the big picture. I don't care what the second kingdom was. I don't care what the third kingdom was. I care about the kingdom that was established that will outlast all other kingdoms. And we would say and we would believe that Jesus is the one who established that kingdom. And as Jesus said, as, as we have said earlier, uh, Jesus was alive during the last days. And then we read in Mark chapter 16, verses 15 and 16, and then eventually verse 18, when Peter is ta- or when Jesus is talking to his disciples, who do the people say that I am? Some say this, some say that. Who do you say that I am? Jesus, uh, Peter says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And then in verse 18, you are... Right, Simon Barjona, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven, and I say that your name is Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Very similar language to what Daniel says about this everlasting kingdom. Jesus says about this everlasting church. The church and the kingdom are related. They're the same thing. We need to understand that and appreciate that. Other things that we can think about when it talks about this, this rock, God is often, this rock that's going to come in and, and crush the statue, God in the Old Testament is often referred to as a rock, the rock of my salvation, the rock of my, uh, that, I, that I lean upon, that, I, that I, he's steadfast like, like a rock. Um, Jesus also is described as the chief cornerstone and he's also described uh, as a rock. In Psalm chapter 2 and verse 9, it says the Son of God will crush the nations. Just like in Daniel chapter 2, it says this rock will crush the nations. In Psalm 118 and verse 22, uh, it says, that it's quoted in Luke chapter 20, uh, that the chief cornerstone, whoever falls upon it or whomever it falls upon will be crushed or will be broken. There's too many connections in scripture for us to understand that this kingdom is anything other than the church and that it was established by any in any other time other than by Jesus. Here's some points for us to really take with us though. From Daniel chapter 2, these four kingdoms, powers of human hands will fall and will fail. Any power of human hands, of human might will fall and will fail. There has never been a kingdom of man that has lasted forever. And there never will be. There's never been a power, a nation, an empire of man's strength that will last forever. That is true in the past. It is true today. It will be true in the future for as long as the earth stands. But there is a power. There is a kingdom. There is an establishment made by God that will last forever. God's eternal kingdom will not fall and will not fail. When I think about Daniel here in chapter 2, I think about Esther. 
Remember when it says about Esther, uh, who knows if for such a time as this you've come to this position to be able to save your people. I truly believe that God is at work and Daniel is in Babylon as a slave for a reason. To reveal this dream, not only to the king, but through God's inspired word to reveal it to us so that we can appreciate God's timing and God's power even more. Notice one thing about Nebuchadnezzar, okay? Uh, In verse, um, verse 47 of Daniel 2. It says, the king answered Daniel and said, truly, your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries since you have been able to reveal this mystery. What does the king, this very, very powerful man, say about God? He's a God of God. He, he is awesome. He must be extremely powerful. But you know what Nebuchadnezzar does about his life? He doesn't change anything. He just goes back to living the very ungodly life that he was living before. We certainly ought not be like that. And then turn your Bibles lastly to Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4. Galatians chapter 4, and let's read verse 4, and then we'll make one more comment, and it'll be yours. Galatians 4, 4. It says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. When God, at the proper time, when, when time was full, at the right time, God sent forth his Son. Have you ever wondered why Jesus didn't come today? You know, we've got so many opportunities for communication. If, you know, if God showed up in the flesh today by tomorrow, everybody would know about him, right? So why in the world show up 2,000 years ago where it has taken years upon years upon years and there are still people here on earth who don't know who Jesus is? If he showed up today, tomorrow, everybody with a cell phone would know who Jesus was. They'd at least heard about him. Why didn't he show up today? Well, I'd probably say one reason because... Facebook uh, and people uh, is probably probably one reason. But what does it mean in the fullness of time that God sent forth his son? Well, let's think about this in relation to Daniel chapter 2. When we think about Babylon, Babylon was one of the first empires with a codified law, with a written down system of law. The Medes and the Persians, probably the second kingdom represented by this statue, were people who took very seriously the written law. Babylon established it and was kind of the first great empire to do it. Uh, The Medes and the Persians were very strict about it. They understood and appreciated the importance of following the law and doing the right thing. There was more law and more order under the Medes and Persians than there had been in any other kingdom before then. You think about the the Greek uh, empire. Well, the, the language of Greek became a language that was one of the very first worldwide languages. It was a trade language. It was a language that everybody in the known world was somewhat familiar with. Before that, people had different languages and it was hard for them to communicate very well. But the the Greeks were such great linguists and they made such a great language and they spread their power in so many places that wherever they went, people were all at least able to, whether they did naturally or not they were all at least able to either speak or understand in in a major way the greek language and then the romans provided us with much better travel than had ever been established before the romans were the first people to to build roads you've probably all seen the meme on facebook about how you know you can still find today in rome and in the roman empire the, the remnants of the roman empire you can find ancient roads that the romans built thousands of years ago we go out here on jefferson avenue and there's a pothole every day right They built roads and they built them well. And we can still find evidence of them today. So the fullness of time, what does that mean exactly? I don't know. But I know by these four, perhaps, kingdoms that are represented here, you had the establishment of a codified law system. 
You had a kingdom, an empire that took law very seriously, which would be important for someone to come and say, hey, here's what I want you to do. Here's what I need you to to understand. And they, and not only did they, they, I know like the Jews, they had a codified law and they had, they took it very seriously, but the Medes and the Persians and the Babylonians, the Babylonians, they, they spread it much more deeply and far reaching than the uh, the Jews were able to. Thirdly, you had a language that was common, so the spreading of the word of God would be much easier. And fourthly, you had the opportunity to travel more easily. And then another point to make is you had Roman citizenship. You remember Paul, you know, he's certainly in the New Testament, I would dare say perhaps ever, the greatest missionary there's ever been. Why was he able to travel so freely all over the known world? Not only because of the roads and the boating systems, but he was a Roman citizen. And because of that, he was able to go anywhere he wanted to without fear of uh, punishment or that sort of thing. So when we think about the the fullness of time, when we think about God uh, doing all of these things, again, the biggest point is, even when it doesn't seem like it, or even when we're confused about it, and we don't know exactly what it means, God is in control, and he is working. It was true then, it is true now. So in your life today, as you're studying God's word, or you're just living life, and things happen to you, and you don't understand why or when or how, God does. And let's take great comfort in that. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity to be here together. Lord, I thank you for your son, Jesus. I thank you for your word that shows us and reveals who you are and what you want us to do. Uh, and Lord, we pray that you'll help us to have a, a love for you, a desire to be who you want us to be. Help us to study your word so that we can know how we ought to live and help us to be committed enough and have a, a strong enough constitution to, to do what we are supposed to do. Lord, we don't do it perfectly, and we, for, we ask you to forgive us when we fail. Lord, be with us tonight when we leave this place and help us to take your word with us. Maybe not in words, maybe not even in, in a, a lesson or a, a showing of, of what the Bible says, but Lord, help us to at least carry your word with us in our hearts and to live according to your word every day so that people can see the good things that we do and glorify you. And we pray that they will grow closer to you because of our meager efforts. Thank you for Jesus. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.